It was April 1st, 1998. Now, anytime you have the date April 1st, you definitely have to get your radar up, right? There was a press release by Burger King. And that, not a press release, but they actually took a full-page ad out in USA Today. In the advertisement, they introduced a new item on the menu. They called it their left-handed Whopper. That's a Whopper. Specially designed for the 32 million left-handed Americans. According to the advertisement, the new Whopper included the same ingredients as the old Whopper, lettuce, tomato, hamburger, patty, etc. But all the condiments were rotated 180 degrees for the benefit of their left-handed customers. The following day, Burger King issued a follow-up release revealing that although the left-handed Whopper was a hoax, thousands of customers had gone into the restaurants to request the new sandwich. Simultaneously, according to the press release, many others requested their own right-handed version of the Whopper. I think that prank, that hoax, was a beautiful thing. I love those types of things. I started to think of things that are beautiful. We're going to talk about unity is a beautiful thing today. I started to think of things in my life that I consider beautiful. Of course, topping the list is my wonderful wife, Karen. I also was thinking, you know, my daughters, my daughters are beautiful. People, you're probably thinking, why aren't you mentioning your son-in-law? Well, that's self-explanatory. I'll get back to him, though. Number three, I think my grandchildren are beautiful. They're definitely more beautiful than your grandchildren. Number four, and this is a man thing, I think something that is beautiful is a perfectly smoked beef brisket. Beautiful. Moist, juicy, tender, amazing. The turquoise water of the Bahamas. I could sit there and look at that water all day long. I think another beautiful thing is a well-executed hook set, right? Get that fish on, the pole's bent. And another beautiful thing is the screaming reel as that fish tries to get away, the drag. I thought of a, a place that I like to sit and look out at from a hotel balcony, and that is the Sea of Galilee, a thing of beauty. Not just because it's a beautiful Lake, the lowest freshwater lake in the world, but it's also a place that you can just imagine the things happening on that lake, the storm being calmed by a voice, a person walking on water, the Sea of Galilee, a beautiful thing. And then the empty tomb of of Jesus, one of the most beautiful places in the entire world that I enjoy the most is the garden tomb in Israel. Because it's, a, it's a, a piece of paradise in the midst of a cacophony of noise and busyness. You enter into the garden tomb and you just feel this peace. But it's beautiful, although it's just a carved out piece of rock. It's beautiful when you go into the tomb because it is empty. And it reminds me of the resurrection, a beautiful thing. So... What else is beautiful? I think it's this. 
a group of followers of Jesus Christ from various backgrounds and ethnicities and economic levels, a group of followers of Jesus that are unified. That is a beautiful thing. And that's what we're going to be talking about as we are in a series that we're calling To the Ends of the Earth, because that's really what the book of Acts is all about, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this theme of unity is a beautiful thing. I have to think of Psalm 113. If you're not good, I'm sorry, Psalm 133. If you're not good at memorizing scripture, try Psalm 133. Because it's only got three verses. Let's read the entire chapter of Psalm 133. The entire song of Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life, forevermore. The beautiful Mount Hermon, the very most northern part of Israel, a mountain that is not the tallest in the world, but a very beautiful mountain that has snow in the wintertime. You can actually go skiing in Israel, and then in a few hours you can be down in a very warm, hot actually spot, the lowest place on the planet at the Dead Sea. What an amazing country. What a beautiful country. And there, Mount Hermon is, is a beautiful, uh, picturesque mountain, snow-capped in the winter, and there you can see for miles both in north, to the north into other countries and to the south into Israel. And from the Mount Hermon comes all of the moisture that eventually fills up the Sea of Galilee. And according to the psalmist, which is King David, he thought that Mount Hermon was a beautiful thing. He also was talking about Aaron's beard. Say, I told you I would mention my son-in-law Aaron, and he actually does have a beard. Now, I don't know if he is beautiful, and I don't know if his beard is beautiful, but it's a decent beard, I guess. So Aaron's beard, why would that be mentioned in this poetic, beautiful song that David is writing? Well, he's writing about the blessings of God, the holiness of God. And you have Aaron, the, the priest, the first priest, and, and he was anointed. And there's this special anointing oil. It's, it's olive oil, but it has other ingredients in it. And I had the opportunity as we were filming the series on the temple, rebuilding the Jewish temple, to interview a man who was growing these ancient plants. And he, he showed me by, by cutting uh, with his knife, he cut the plant and out of that, uh, that cut came this liquid. It's the resin or, you know, the, the, the part of the plant that's, that's trying to heal itself. But that forms into these little, he called them teardrops. When they harden, they break them off of the trees and they grind that into what you can put over hot coals and it becomes incense. And it's the balm of Gilead, the, the frankincense of the Bible. And so you have these ingredients that they would grind up and also put into oil. And it was the anointing oil. 
And it's a beautiful thing to see that, that we can be reconciled back and we can have access to God and we can come to him. We're talking about beautiful things. We're talking about how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And it's like the, the beautiful Mount Hermon and the dews falling upon the mountain as the, as the, as the oil comes down from Aaron and, and comes down on his beard. Uh, it's the, it's a beautiful thing of God's blessing that we can have that access to God. And it's even better now that we don't have to have a priest representing us. You don't have to have a pastor representing you. You can go straight to God. And I hope you do. I hope you do go straight to God. And then it also talked about, uh, Aaron's beard. And if you, if you Google Aaron's beard, the strangest thing happens, you'll find a number of flowers. Because of this psalm, there are, there are at least four different beautiful flowers that are called Aaron's beard. It's really interesting. Look that up later. But uh, we have Mount Hermon, we have Aaron's beard, and then we have the mountains of Zion. What is the mountains of Zion? That's Jerusalem. That's the holy city, the, the city of God. And it's a beautiful thing. When, when God uh, came to this earth there in Israel, died there in Zion, rose again, he's coming back, and because of that, uh, we can have blessing, even life forevermore. Now, as we go back in the Bible from the book of Psalms, I want, to, I want you to think back and, and, and look at the different brother uh, groups that we find in the Bible, and, and I want you to think, do those brothers represent unity? Remember this psalm is how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Do we see unity when we look at the, the first brothers, Cain and Abel? We do not see unity there, do we? In our fallen state, we have, we have the opposite of unity with Cain and Abel. How about, okay, how about Isaac and Ishmael? Do we see unity there? No, we don't see unity there. As we continue through scripture, we come to Jacob and Esau. Was there unity there? No, unfortunately, there was not unity. Okay, we get to Joseph. Joseph and his brothers. Did we see unity with Joseph and his brothers? No, we did not. David, the author of this psalm. David was put down by his brothers. They didn't want him around. You don't find unity there. How about David's sons? Very dysfunctional, very disunified. So what is David writing about? It's certainly not about all of those brothers. I think he's looking forward. He's looking forward to the ultimate unity. And that is when we are all going to get along perfectly. You won't have any problems with anyone else. But that won't be until heaven. But... But we can have unity, we can experience unity in this life, in this world, in this church. And that unity is a beautiful thing. So remember, as we're in the book of Acts, we are talking about the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really a continuation of the story of Jesus. Although he has just ascended into heaven, all four Gospels funnel into the first 11 verses of Acts. And now Jesus has ascended... What happens next? This is the early, early, early church. Well, look at Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then returned they unto Jerusalem, 
from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they were come in, they went up into the upper room. Let's talk about the mount called Olivet. What would we call that? We would call it the Mount of Olives. And if you're standing in Jerusalem, we would call it the the Temple Mount area or the Old City. That was Jerusalem in ancient times. Now, Jerusalem has really grown, and it's no longer in that little Old City area. Now it's all over the hills of Jerusalem, the hills of Judea. But the Mount of Olives is a place that we take people when we go on tours to Israel because from the Mount of Olives, you have this beautiful panorama looking west of the old city of Jerusalem, the whole entire city of Jerusalem, but especially the Temple Mount. And, and there we stand and we gaze down upon this beautiful city. The Mount of Olives was a very important city in the Bible, an uh, important place in the Bible. It was a place in which we know that God's glory ascended at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. The Shekinah glory was there and it it left Jerusalem, it left the temple, it eventually went up onto the Mount of Olives and it ascended into heaven. I think, of course, that's why Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives and he's coming back from the Mount of Olives because he is the glory of God. He is the light of the world. The Mount of Olives was very important in the life of Christ because he would often go there with his disciples. They would get away. It was a beautiful, tranquil area, of course, full of olive trees, right? Mount of Olives. There's many olive trees there today. You can go to the Mount of Olives and still see olive trees. When we were doing this series on rebuilding the temple, there's actually a parcel of land that they purchased that will be for the red heifer ceremony. We stood there and we filmed there. And that was part of the Mount of Olives for making sure that people were ready for temple worship. And of course, that's where Jesus went to pray the night in which he was arrested. He was actually arrested on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of the Olive Press, Gethsemane. So the Mount of Olives, very important in the Bible, a very beautiful place today. I love the Mount of Olives. They went down the Mount of Olives into the valley that separates the Mount of Olives from Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount, and that is called the Kidron Valley. They went up from the Kidron Valley to the upper room. Now, where was the upper room? We don't know where it was because, remember, the entire city was destroyed, but we, all, we do know Uh, We do believe that it might have been where there's a traditional site of the upper room today, which is in the area called Mount Zion. And so it, it certainly wasn't very far. What is the Sabbath day journey? What does that mean? Well, they were allowed to travel only one mile on the Sabbath. Why did God stipulate that they couldn't travel very far on the Sabbath? Well, it was so that they wouldn't go far and so that they would be able to rest and worship on Shabbat. And so that's why uh, during the, the festivals, a lot of people camped close by because they couldn't be more than a about a mile from the temple. As a matter of fact, they say that the, the Mount of Olives would have been filled with thousands and thousands of people camping there during those festivals and those feasts. 
Just can imagine what that would have been like. So there they go down the Mount of Olives. They go up to the upper room. It was less than a mile, the Sabbath day journey. And there they went into this upper room. Now this upper room's becoming pretty prominent in their lives, right? That's where they went. How did they even find the upper room? Well, God had prepared that for them. And they were up in this upper room. And that's where Jesus, before he was arrested and crucified, that's where he uh, had a last meal with them. I believe it was a pre-Passover meal, but it was just before the time of Passover. And there's where he instituted the communion service that we still observe to this day until he returns. It's a beautiful time of fellowship. And that's also where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. There he also predicted that he would be crucified, that he would be going away. And all of these things, the upper room is central. And now Jesus has gone into heaven. Remember the angel said, why stand you gazing into heaven, ye men of Galilee? You know, God has given you some things to go do, now go do them. And so they they go down the Mount of Olives, they come up back into Mount Zion, and to the upper room. Now, in Acts one thirteen, in the second half of this verse, we're given a list. And actually, in verse 14, we're given some more people that were there. Who were in the upper room? Well, it was the 11. There abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes, Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Let's go through some of these people because these are important people. These were the disciples. Now we're going to call them the apostles because now they're, they're, they're the ones that are going to start the church. God is going to use them all in great and mighty ways. And some of them were very prominent. Some of them we hardly know anything about. Peter, every time you see a list of apostles, Peter is at the top of the list. And by the way, just so you know, some of the people in the Bible had more than one name. It becomes a little confusing. They usually didn't have a surname or last name. They would have the name of the father, grandfather, or even a trade. Remember, Jesus would be called a carpenter or from a town, Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus of Joseph. That was, that was their last name. And so you, sometimes we have people with different names. Peter had other names, and then you have different languages, right? So Peter's name in Greek was Simon. We call him Simon Peter. We also know his Hebrew name was Cephas, okay? And Jesus called him Petros, or Peter. Simon, Peter, Cephas, Petros was a fisherman. He also was married, And those that say he was the first pope, I think there's a problem with that. How do we know he was married? Because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. It's the collateral of getting married. I mean that in a good way, if there is such a thing. We also know that he lived in Capernaum, and that was the headquarters of Jesus in this early ministry. He was a Galilean, and many of the other disciples were Galileans as well. This was an area in the northern part of Israel And the Talmud, a collection of Jewish writings, says this about Galileans. They were kind of looked down upon. They were more anxious for honor than for gain. Quick-tempered, impulsive, emotional, easily aroused by an appeal to adventure, loyal to the end. Peter fits that bill, doesn't he? 
Peter was a typical Galilean. He was the leader, leader of the 12. But even though he was the leader, he had many faults. Wasn't he the one that jumped out of the boat and walked on the water? But no matter how many times he sank, no matter how many times he failed, and he really blew it big time, he always recovered. Peter wrote two books in our Bible. And also tradition says that he was martyred on a cross and he requested to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same way as his Lord, Peter. And then the Bible says, James and John. James and John were also fishermen. They were brothers. They followed Jesus. John is the one that wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation as he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. I've been to Patmos, and there's actually a cave that has a natural stone that looks like it could be a writing desk. We don't know if that was the cave or not, but it certainly seems to fit the bill. And there John received the revelation of the future events. And James... James, and you think, well, he must be the author of the book of James. No, that was a different James. It was actually uh, the brother of Jesus or a stepbrother of Jesus that wrote the book of James, and that was the great leader of the early church in Jerusalem. But, but James has an amazing story. Although he didn't write his story, we don't, we don't read a lot about him. He has an amazing story. Why? Because he was beheaded by Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great slaughtered the innocents in Bethlehem trying to get rid of Jesus. And all these years later, his grandson takes off the head of one of the main apostles. Remember, James was part of the inner circle. James, Peter, and John. The inner circle. They were the ones that were closest to Christ. And uh, Herod Agrippa takes off his head. He was the nephew of Herod Antipas that also took off the head of another uh, man named John the Baptist. And so it was that James has a story as well. And the story is that he was faithful to the death. As a matter of fact, tradition says that James was the first apostle to suffer death. He was the second martyr after Stephen. And they say that his fate to face death was started with an individual that brought charges against James. And they went before a tribunal. And when the case was over and James had been condemned to death, the man that had instigated this trial was so deeply moved by James's behavior and his countenance that he, and James was so filled with the Spirit of God that on the way to be executed, the one who had initiated this, this trial made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And when he asked James to forgive him, the apostle said, peace be to thee, brother. The one that's responsible for James being beheaded is now born again. James then kisses him and both men were beheaded for their faith. Isn't that an amazing story? So James, although he didn't write a book, he certainly wrote something for us, didn't he? His, his life, his testimony, his faithfulness to death. And then we read about Andrew. Who was Andrew? Well, Andrew was Peter's brother. Jesus talked a lot about two pairs of brothers. 
two pairs of brothers. Isn't it a beautiful thing when brethren live in unity? Well, we have James and John, but we also have Andrew and Peter. Of course, Andrew would have been a fisherman as well. He was the first, at first the disciple of John the Baptist, and then he brings Simon, or his brother Peter, to Jesus. Three countries claim Andrew as their patron saint, Russia, Scotland, and Greece. And that's where a lot of, you know, the traditions are really hard to figure out because, you know, a lot of different places claim them. But I think what that means is that, that Andrew probably went to all of these places. According to tradition, it was in Achaia, Greece, in the town of Patra, that Andrew died as a martyr. When Governor Apius' wife was healed and converted to the Christian faith, and shortly after that, the governor's brother became a Christian, Apius was enraged, and he arrested Andrew and condemned him to die on the cross. Andrew, also feeling unworthy to be crucified in the same way as his master, begged it to be different. And so it was said that he was crucified on a cross shaped as an X, which is still called St. Andrew's Cross to this day. He was in the upper room as well. I'm sure they were still uncertain about everything, but glad because they had been with Jesus for those 40 days. Now he has gone into heaven. They saw that. Now they know they have a task. They have to wait a little while for the Holy Spirit, but then they have a task to bring the gospel to the world. The next one mentioned was Philip. Philip came from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is another little town near the Sea of Galilee or on the Sea of Galilee. They've, they've actually thought there was a town called Bethsaida just up on a hill from the Sea of Galilee. We filmed there with Dr. Carl Ball. But they've recently found that they, they, they think they found the real Bethsaida. Or maybe there was two, a winter Bethsaida and a summer Bethsaida. When the fishing was good, they'd be down in the town on the lake. Either way, Bethsaida is where uh, Philip comes from. Also a fisherman. Uh, this is also the town that Peter and Andrew would have been from, Bethsaida, because they lived in Capernaum, but that wasn't very far from Bethsaida. That was their, their town of origin. And Philip, um, it, it's, it's really interesting. The first three Gospels usually just mention Philip and some of the other people just by name. That's all we know about. But the Gospel of John shows Philip to be the one in whom Jesus first addressed the words, follow me. John tells us that that was to Philip. After Philip met Jesus, what did he do? He immediately finds Nathanael and says, we have found him, the one who Moses has been speaking of, the one that the prophets have been writing about. Now, Nathanael was skeptical, but Philip, instead of arguing, simply says, come and see. Now, sometimes that's all you really need to do. You don't need to argue someone into heaven. Just say, come and see. See what he has done for me. This simple Galilean Philip gave all that he had. It is said that he died by hanging. While he was dying, he requested that his body be wrapped not in a linen, but in papyrus. For he was not worthy for even his dead body to be treated like the body of Jesus. The symbol of Philip is a basket because of his part in the feeding of the 5,000. Everyone had a job to do with Jesus. Some of the people we don't read much about, they're not very prominent, 
But everyone has a purpose. Everyone in this room, everyone listening to my, to my voice, you have a purpose. God has something that only you, if you're willing, can do for him. Then we come to Thomas. You might hear his name in scripture, Didymus. Why would he have two names? Well, Thomas was his Hebrew name. Didymus was his Greek name. He lived in the Galilee as well. And at times, we actually uh, find that he was called Judas. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us nothing about Thomas except for his name. However, once again, John fills in some gaps and help us, helps us know more about Thomas. It was Thomas in the upper room when he wanted to know where Jesus was going. He asked the question. And then we see Thomas after the crucifixion saying, unless I touch the, the, the nail scars, I will not believe. And then when Jesus did appear, Thomas wasn't there. It's a, not a good thing to miss church because you never know what's going what's to happen in church. But uh, he said, I'm not going to believe. But then Jesus made another appearance to Thomas. And we actually, the Bible doesn't say that Thomas reached out and touched Jesus' scars. But we do know Thomas confessed him, my Lord and my God. We should stop calling him Doubting Thomas, right? Why? Well, for that one reason. But also, yes, Thomas was a pessimist by nature. And some of you are too. And there's actually a need for pessimism in the world every now and then. As long as you don't get me down. But you're more of a realist, I think, sometimes. And that helps us. Yet, although we call him Doubting Thomas, let's call him Thomas of Courage. Because his doubts were transformed into a great faith. And tradition says that he brought the gospel to Parthia, Persia, and even India. Suffering martyrdom as he was thrust through with a spear, a pike, near Madras in India. I want to go tell that story. The story of Thomas bringing the gospel to India. And then also the story of a relative of mine, Ida Scudder, who brought the gospel to India as well with her parents and grandparents. It'll be a, an engraced episode down the road one of these days. Thomas. And then the Bible talks about Bartholomew. You might recognize him also by his other name, Nathaniel. He lived in Cana of Galilee. You remember Cana was the, the town of the first miracle. It's very near Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Not far from uh, Caesarea uh, or not far from uh, Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And a number of scholars believe that he was the only one of the 12 who came from royalty. Perhaps he had a noble birth. His name means son of Talmai. Talmai was king of Geshur, whose daughter Makkah was the wife of David, the mother of Absalom. So if that's true, he would be one that had royal blood in his veins. Bartholomew was probably his middle name. And that appears on every list of the disciples. His first name, Nathaniel, whom Jesus called an Israelite in whom was no guile. And I've known only a few people in my life that I feel have no guile. Most of us have lots of guile. But Nathaniel, Jesus said, didn't have any guile. Tradition says that he was one of the church's most adventurous missionaries. He is said to have preached with Philip in Phygia and Heropolis in Armenia. Tradition says that he was also uh, in India preaching the gospel, and his death seems to have taken place there as well. 
He died as a martyr for his Lord. Tradition said he was flayed alive by knives. So we have Bartholomew or Nathaniel. And then the Bible in our list here in Acts 1 talks about Matthew. Matthew. Uh, we also find his name to be Levi, son of Alphaeus. He lived in Capernaum. It's possible that James the Lesser was Matthew's brother, also named the son of Alphaeus, but probably not because Jesus only mentioned two pairs of brothers in his disciples, in the group of disciples. So we don't know. Some of these things are a little bit vague, but uh, he is also called the son of Alphaeus. But one thing we do know about Matthew is that he was a publican, not a republican, but a publican or a tax collector. Tax collectors were especially hated by Jews. And he was a Jew, but he became a tax collector for his own gain and really turned against his people because he was collecting taxes for the Greek or the Roman Empire and they were Gentiles. Also, the tax collectors were known not only uh, to be hated by uh, on religious grounds, but also because they were notoriously unjust. And yet Jesus chose a man that all people hate and made him one of his men. It took Jesus to see the potential in a tax collector in Capernaum. And Matthew was unlike other apostles who were mostly fishermen. Matthew could use a pen. And he used his pen to write the beautiful gospel that bears his name. He was a missionary, according to tradition. He laid down his life for his master, dying a martyr in Ethiopia. And then we come to James the Lesser. How would you be like to be called James the Lesser or the Younger or a little Jim, a little James? Uh, he was maybe younger or than the, the other James, but he was possibly short too. We don't know. We don't know. But he lived in Galilee. Tradition implies that it was James the Less who had taken the gospel to Persia, which is modern Iran, and there he was murdered. Uh, martyred. And you know what? Sadly, we don't know much about him at all. We just know basically his name and the tradition. But the lack of information about James here is a lesson. It's a lesson. James was just as much of an apostle as Peter and John, the one we know so much about. He was just as as much an apostle as them. He will sit on a throne in Jesus' earthly kingdom with full authority and honor like the rest of the apostles. Although we don't know much about him, he has a prominent position Because of faithful service to Christ. Even if people don't know you, don't know what you do or what you've done for Christ, it doesn't matter because Christ knows. He knows. He won't be considered less in eternity, nor will you. So be faithful, even if no one knows your name. Simon the Zealot. Who is Simon the Zealot? Another little known follower of Jesus. All we really know about him is that he was Formerly a zealot. Zealots were fanatical Jewish nationalists. They were crazed with hate for the Romans. Josephus says the zealots were reckless people, zealous in good practices and extravagant and reckless in the worst kinds of actions. Yet Simon emerges as a man of faith. He replaced his hatred for love. And tradition says he also died by crucifixion. And then we have Judas, the brother of James, 
He was the apostle identified in the gospels as not Iscariot. You wouldn't want to have the name Judas uh, in that time because of what Judas Iscariot did. So he was known as Judas, not Iscariot. He was also known as Thaddeus or Lebus. Uh, Judas Thaddeus was known as Judas the Zealot or Zealotus. Okay. Uh, he was one of the very little known apostles. He lived in the Galilee. Tradition says that he preached in Assyria and Persia and died a martyr in Persia. It is said that Jude went to preach the gospel in Edessa near the Euphrates River, and there he healed many, and many believed in Jesus. Many believed in Jesus. So those are the people that are mentioned by name. And also Mary. Remember we read about Mary, the mother of Jesus. There in Acts 1, that's the last time we read about Mary. Mary had been entrusted to the care of John, so we would assume where John was, Mary, the mother of Jesus, would be. And you know what's so wonderful about Mary now? She was vindicated. She had told everyone that she had had a child without knowing a man. And they always doubted her. And they always said that she must have been uh, immoral. But now, because Jesus arose and ascended, everybody knew that she was telling the truth. And it says, with his brethren. In other words, I think in this room with the disciples and Mary and some other women were Jesus' brothers. Now, this is incredible, right? Why? Because the Bible in Mark 6, 3 says... When they were, and when Jesus went to Nazareth and they were like, is this the, is this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? So Jesus had brothers, half brothers, stepbrothers and sisters. And they were offended at him. They did not believe. Can you imagine having all these siblings that didn't believe in you? But now they do. Why? The resurrection. Now the brethren can dwell together in unity because they believe. It's Jesus unifies people. Remember in Acts 1.14 where it says, these all continued with one accord? That's beautiful unity. And that's what God wants in his church. That's what God wants in your life. He wants your life to be a picture of unity and oneness. And that can be achieved when we have a unifier, and his name is Jesus. When you put your faith in him, you can achieve unity with your brethren. Although Cain and Abel couldn't find it, Isaac and Ishmael couldn't find it, Jacob and Esau couldn't find it, Joseph and his brothers, David and his brothers, David's sons, now, because of Jesus, even his own siblings, we're dwelling together in unity in one accord in prayer and supplication. What a beautiful thing that is. More beautiful than a beef brisket. More beautiful than the turquoise water of the Bahamas. More beautiful than even my wife, which is hard to imagine such a beautiful thing. More beautiful than my son-in-law's beard. The unity of Christians, what we should have, the love for we should have for each other is a beautiful thing. And in this world of discord, let us show unity like the, like the great Golden Gate Bridge. Two big cables hold that whole thing up together. They say that, that that bridge can hold thousands of cars' weight. Okay, It's made up of 20,000 separate cables. All of those cables would snap 
but they're all twisted together in, in unity. And that unity provides the support across this chasm. And that's the unity that you should be able to find because of Jesus with other people that know him as Savior. Do you know him? Have you put your trust in him? Jesus is the son of God. He died for you and rose again. If you'll believe in him, if you'll trust in him, the Bible says you will not perish but have everlasting life. And that is beautiful.